All right. We're going to continue on today in our study. Um, we Last week, we kind of introduced this topic of, of heresy as this emerging threat to the church, to the newly developing church in the first few centuries of the church's history. And of course, prior to that, we were looking at uh, external threats. Uh, we looked at how the church was being threatened basically from the state and from sources outside the church, physical threat and also undermining philosophical threat where there were writers that came along and defended the church against these things, and there was a certainly no shortage of, of dire circumstance for the church that it's had to endure in the, in the form of persecution, uh, torture, uh, isolation, a reduction of civic privileges, all, all that you can you know, imagine that might take place when the state bears down on, on a particular religious group. And so that was the experience of the early church, of course. And then you have also the threats that emerged early on and that are still with us today, uh, threats from within, really heresy, things that would be um, a divergence from orthodox truth, uh, an adherence to religious opinion contrary to church, to church dogma would be a Merriam-Webster dictionary of, of heresy. So we started looking at that last week by really just talking about the nature of false teaching and how it comes to us, and we looked at the teaching of Christ at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, just kind of looked at some characteristics of false teaching and false teachers as a, as a sort of a, a context for what we're going to begin to look at today. Um, we, we've also encountered false teaching in our study of church history and it's sort of the natural flow of events when we saw this uh, emergence of the Judaizers very early on in the church's history and we see Acts really dealing with that significantly. We have this seminal event in Acts chapter 15 of the Jerusalem Council that was all about addressing the heresy of the Judaizers, which was essentially adding to the gospel, adding to salvation through Christ alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, and justification by faith alone, adding to it works, adding to it the right of circumcision and adherence to the Mosaic law. The Judaizers were wanting to add to the gospel, and that became a point of, of real, heated, and challenging controversy, so much so that it led to this council, it led to no shortage or no small debate amongst the apostles and leaders of the church, and it led to the Apostle Paul writing with great passion and conviction uh, to, to the churches in the Galatia region in Galatians. So we've, we've been introduced to this internal heresy. The Judaizers was really the first primary heresy that, that really threatened the church that we see coming on the scene. And as we think about studying uh, heresy, or the, really these ancient heresies that, that the church faced, um, a question might arise, well, what's the point? Why would we want to study uh, the, er- the erroneous beliefs of dead people? I mean, what's, I mean we, we, want to stu- we want to study what we should be believing, not what people who have taught error believed. And and so um, the real the issue is that two things. One comes from what we talked about last week. The reason why we want to look at these things, other than the fact that we're studying church history and it's part of church history, uh, is that spiritual deception is very deceptive. Spiritual deception is very deceptive. That's, again, straight from the Department of Redundancy Department. Um, but it, it, I think it, it bears repeating in that way that... that as, as we read the quote from Irenaeus last week, error never shows itself in its naked reality in order, in order not to be discovered. On the contrary, it dresses elegantly so, the, so that the unwary may be led to believe that it is more truthful than truth itself. 
And of course, we looked at Matthew chapter 7 and Jesus' instructions in the Sermon on the Mount and his instructions starting in verse 13 about the narrow gate versus the wide gate. And narrow is the, the way that leads to, to life, that, and, and, and few are they that enter by it, but many is the, or wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many are they that enter by it. And that there is one way, there is one source, one, one gospel, one door, one gate, and only one pathway to God through Jesus Christ, and that everything else is the wrong way which opens up a wide plethora of options and nuance of belief and fashion and, and all kinds of ways to think about eternal things and eternal destiny and what's the meaning of life. So you've got this narrow, narrow gate, this narrow door, this narrow way, which is Jesus Christ. And so you can only imagine that if it's everything else outside of that is, is fair game for leading to destruction, you can only imagine how many different appeals can be made, how many varied kinds of appeals to our flesh and to our pride that might lead us away from this narrow way that are possible. It's really an endless number, an endless variety. And, and, and it, comes to, it comes to the un, unwary, it comes to the naive, it comes to the undiscerning uh, very elegantly. And I love the way Irenaeus put it. it, it, it it's so compelling and so convincing that it seems more truthful than truth itself. Spiritual deception is very deceptive, and so uh, it's important that we look at these heretical uh, doctrines, particularly as they emerged early on in the church's history, just to make sure that we're mindful of the emergence of these kinds of things and how they confront the people of God and can lead God's people uh, down the pathway toward error. Um, the other reason why I think this is really important for us, is that virtually every cult and every false doctrine that we even see today has its root or its seed in these early heresies. You will see some variation, some portion, some elements of these early heresies that really threatened the, the, the early church in profound and significant ways. You'll see them today. You'll see strands of them. You'll see characteristics of them today. So it's just in the same way that, that uh, um, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 1.9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Well, there's nothing new under the sun. So what we're seeing today, there's seeds of it you can trace all the way back to even what we're going to talk about today in, the, in, in Gnosticism. So for us to be able to kind of identify these things and recognize them and just grow in our discernment of them, and possibly even have... Um, have have thoughtful ways that we can engage people who might be um, tempted to be led astray by some of these doctrines to help expose them for what they really are. Yes? Did you say that um, consistent but accurate shallow teaching would inevitably lead to false teaching? Is that accurate to say that in the sense that maybe somebody's not teaching something wrong per se, but that will lead maybe into the, the, the hearers of that stuff eventually falling away or you know falling after some of these, these false doctrines because they're not sharp enough to discern truth from error. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure I know what you're you're asking and getting at. Yeah, um, and I would just say that um, that 
one of the one of the ways that I I think that the church or Christian people um, persist in being undiscerning is is not being um, taught to um, really understand the truths of the gospel, doctrinal truth. In other words, roots not being sunk down deep, not not even being taught. Um, sort of basic disciplines of of thinking about and meditating upon the truth of God's word and having that be a, a sanctifying you know part of of spiritual growth and spiritual life, a, a teaching that I think is appeals to um, very practical and almost only practical matters, temporal matters of living is another way. I mean, if all we do is think about this life. And how to, for example, have the, have our best life now kind of thing. That's just not a, that's not a complete picture of what the gospel, what the New Testament, what the scriptures teach. In fact, it's 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 very short sighted. So yes, Bill. And also those who focus almost exclusively on the social gospel wind up susceptible to all sorts of foolishness. Yeah, and then not only that, but that the, the those kinds of social gospel, social you know activism kinds of things, it substitutes you know it substitutes good feelings about my own activity. It's a form of legalism, really. It's it's really a subtle form of legalism disguised as as selflessness, because people can begin to think that if I if I involve myself in these good works, I feel good about it, and they are in and of themselves good to do, but it, gets, it becomes a substitute for, for genuine salvation as well. I, I took a math course years ago, and we, we did, in the logic, we did a, something called a truth table. And what you discover from these truth tables is, if at any point in your analysis you accept something that's false as true, you assume it's true, it can lead you anywhere Anybody want. Yeah, yeah, susceptible, very vulnerable. So it's important for us to kind of understand some of these early seeds of, of erroneous teaching that l- can lead people astray from the truth, just the basic, plain truth of Scripture, the blas- basic, clear in- indication and implications of the gospel of salvation through Christ. Um, it was the Spanish philosopher George Santayana who said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. A very familiar phrase, I'm sure, to many of you. And that's, that's indeed what happens over and over and over again. Um, so we've, enc- we've encountered these Judaizers. Just to give you a, a clearer picture of that, the, these, these Jewish people who were trying to basically blend legalistic, ritualistic Judaism with Christianity... Um, and, and add the right of circumcision and adherence to the Mosaic law as a condition of salvation. That was the essential message or tenets of Judaism. I want you to listen to some quotes here, okay? Just, to, just in, in, in terms of thinking about how these are seeds, these, these heresies are seeds of what continues to go on. Baptism is the first and chief sacrament of forgiveness of sins because it unites us with Christ who died for our sins and rose for our justification so that we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism, by imparting the life of Christ's grace, erases original sin. 
Justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God who makes us inwardly just by the power of His mercy. Now just replace baptism with circumcision. Okay? You're talking about a rite or a ritualistic exercise in this context. These are all quotes from the, uh, the Catholic Catechism and their, their instruction, their doctrinal statements on baptism. And in fact, they're talking about conferring, they're talking about erasing original sin and conferring justification through the rite of baptism. And who is it that they practice baptism on? Infants. So you go back into the early church history and you look at the Judaizers and they're saying, no, salvation comes, yes, through Christ, but also through the rite of circumcision. It's a necessary component of salvation. You're just adding a physical outward sign that is salvific, you would call it. It, it. it is a means of salvation, a means of grace. It's not just a symbol. It's not just a demonstration of what God has already done. It's a means. And it's the similar rite because it's performed on, on infants, right? So, so again, just to give you the sense of the seeds of this and how it carries forward, it's, it's the same, at the heart of it, it's the same. We're going to see that again today as we look at this other early heresy that, um, that came about, the, the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry says this about, about attaining salvation in Roman Catholicism. Salvation in Roman Catholicism is a process with many steps. Actual grace, faith, good works, baptism, participation in the sacraments, penance, indulgences, and keeping the commandments. Basically, salvation is attained through baptism and good works. It is maintained by good works and participation in the sacraments. If lost, it is regained through the, sacram- the sacrament of penance, which only a Roman Catholic priest can administer. And to this purgatorial cleansing after a person dies, and you can see that salvation is an arduous process. But then you have at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15... Peter standing up and saying, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, Peter stands up in the midst of all this controversy and he says, why are we adding this yoke, this burden? Why are we making this hard? We can't even do this as Jews. And we're going we're to lay this on these Gentile believers And James follows that by saying, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, don't make it arduous in this way. Yes? What was that Peter reference? That's Acts chapter 15, verse 10. Are you talking about 1 Peter 3, 21, baptism? That's the the baptism verse that says, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Did you go over that? Well, no, I wasn't quoting that, that from Peter. They're, that was from the Catechism, but they're they're referencing that and, and kind of using that as a proof text for baptismal regeneration. Are you are you wanting the, the quote the the Acts the Acts? Okay, just wanted to clarify that. So so again, you had the Judaizers as this first this first push of of erroneous teaching that that plagued the early church, and the seeds of it you can see carrying forward even to today. You had the Judaizers, which they sought to blend the old covenant rituals and legalism to Christianity. Today we're going to look at Gnosticism, which basically goes to the other end of the spectrum. Gnosticism sought to blend pagan philosophy with Christianity. 
So you go from religious, legalistic, ritualistic, Old Testament, Old Covenant practice, trying to merge that or blend that into something that resembles both Christianity and and Judaism. You have a, a similar practice, but going to the other end of the extreme with Gnosticism, with blending pagan philosophy, I mean, like out-and-out pagan philosophy, pantheism and, and sort of idol worship with Christianity to come up with something that would be appealing to the masses. The Judaizers were clinging to the past, but the Gnostics were representing a, a radical break from the past. So, when we talk about Gnosticism, I'm sure that you guys, how many of you this week like had coffee at Starbucks with someone and the topic of your conversation was Gnosticism? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Anyone? No? A little Ferris Bueller reference for you. So, so this is one of those things where, again, you start talking about it and you know, our, you know, our ears just start to kind of maybe bleed. It's like, really, we're going to talk about Gnosticism? I mean, what does that have to do with you know, what I have to do tomorrow kind of thing? But, but stay with me. Stay, stay engaged with me here. This is the, you're, I think you're going to hopefully uh, see, see how this connects in the same way we, we looked at the Judaism or the Judaizer uh, error. Um, I think we're going to make some good connections here too. Gnosticism was and is, if you want to bring it in today's time, a very diverse, complex, multifaceted, and very difficult to define set of beliefs. So I'm not going to try to define it in its totality. It would be impossible. There's many, many strands and many, many variants. Um, some of them even compete against each other, you know, and they, they conflict with each other. So to try to kind of come up with a coherent, you know, seminal document that says this is Gnosticism would be really impossible. But there are a few key ideas in Gnosticism that sort of bind it together and and sort of move Gnosticism toward a, a common end. Okay, so that's what we're going to focus on. What are the things that, what are the elements that bind all the various strands of Gnosticism together? And what is the end? What's the end game? What's the end objective of this error that infused itself into the early church in the first, in the second and third century? To just make the modern day connection right out of the gate, the most, the most, um, Obvious modern connection to Gnosticism would be the New Age movement, as it was known in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Now it's being called the New Spirituality. Okay, so it's again some variances here, but but the same kind of ideas, the same kind of core ideas. This New Spirituality that we see uh, in our day and time. Summit Ministries uh, is basically a, a worldview. Um, ministry. They write and do curriculum. We actually use their curriculum in, here in our school, in both the middle school and the high school. They surveyed people from different Christian traditions and ethnicities who live in every region of America, in both rural and urban communities, and found that 61%, 61%, that's more than half if you're doing the math, 61% of practicing Christians agree with ideas rooted in new spirituality. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, one key point to to start off with, Gnosticism, or this new spirituality, is complex. It's not simple. Yellow flag. 
Yellow flag. Remember we talked about this last week. It's very complex, not simple. When I think of this, I can't help, my daughter's going to love this, I can't help but thinking of the movie Christopher Robin, which we saw yesterday. It's a great movie, but it, it, what it strikes at the heart at is, is, the, is the value of simplicity. The, the, the value of, of just a return to simple things. In other words, it, you know, it's, it's about this, this boy and his childhood and the simplicity of childhood. But you have this movie that, you know, I'm not going to, if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to give you any spoilers. But this, you know, Christopher Robin grows up and he l- kind of loses his bearings on the more simple, basic things of life. And of course, Winnie the Pooh, the great stuffed animal philosopher that he is, I, it, this is a great movie, and some of the best Winnie the Pooh quotes are, are the filled in this movie. So I know I went from the, you know, talking about Gnosticism to Winnie the Pooh. I don't know if that was too hard of a transition. Are you guys with me? We're on Winnie the Pooh now. But just listen to some of these quotes, and think about the, the difference between complex and simple. And we're going to make the, the transition into, to back into what we're talking about today. So regarding patience in general, Winnie the Pooh says, Rivers know this. There is no hurry. We shall get there someday. Rivers know this. Isn't that great? Regarding patience with others. If the person you are talking to doesn't appear to be listening, be patient. It may simply be that he has a small piece of fluff in his ear. (laughs) Regarding simple accomplishments, and I have to footnote this. This is my daughter's senior quote that she put in in her yearbook. This is, this, is, this is her statement regarding simple accomplishments. People say nothing is impossible, but I do nothing every day. <laughs> and then regarding simple communication, this is a great quote from Winnie the Pooh. It is more fun to talk with someone who doesn't use long, difficult words, but rather short, easy words like, what about lunch? <laughs> Remember what I said last week. False teaching often wants to move its adherence to things that are complex, mysterious, hidden. I am bringing to you some new idea, some nuance of teaching that no one has discovered up till this point, and I am delivering it to you, and you embracing this is going to take you from this shade of darkness into the brightness of noonday light. And it's, it's usually very esoteric and, and complex and, and not straightforward, like Winnie the Pooh. And it leads people astray. We read from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, where the Apostle Paul, talking to the Corinthians who were getting swept up in philosophies and idle speculations and adherences and loyalties to people who they thought were the best teachers... And he says this, I'm afraid that as, a, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere, or really the Greek word means simple, and pure devotion to Christ. So at the core of both Gnosticism, ancient Gnosticism, and this new spirituality that we see in our day and time, is the belief that divine wisdom is hidden in a mystery that is revealed only to enlightened people. That there is something more below the surface that's hidden. 
And, and it's, there's like a key that you have to have to unlock this world of knowledge. And as you probably know, Gnosticism derives its name from the Greek word gnosis, which is the word for knowledge. So it's about this secret, esoteric, mysterious knowledge that you have to attain to, or it has to be given to you, taught to you by the betters, by the smarters, the wisers, in order for you to reach a place of real enlightened belief, even salvation-like belief. That's sort of at the core of Gnosticism, and it lies at the core of these strands, these ideas of this new spirituality that we see today. And it advances, it advances a conviction that salvation lies in a hidden knowledge that goes beyond what is clearly and plainly revealed in Scripture. So it's, it goes beyond Scripture. There's something more. There's some nuance that you just haven't seen. That's why when we talked uh, a few weeks ago about the whole allegorical method of interpretation that emerged in the early church, that, that had to be dealt with as well, that that is, a, is a, another way that opens the door for people to be led astray. It's kind of like what Phil was saying earlier. It, it creates vulnerability to almost anything. If I can interpret what seems plain, if I can move from Winnie the Pooh hermeneutics and biblical interpretation to something very mysterious and below the surface, like allegorical method of interpretation, which says that every scripture can have as many as five different meanings, five different layers of meaning. Imagine how easily manipulated a passage of scripture can can become and how easily twisted things can become for people. So Gnosticism is about this secret knowledge. Well, what is the secret knowledge? Well, it would depend on which Gnostic teacher or new spirituality teacher you talk to, literally. I mean, in other words, that's, that's where it gets like this. It's very difficult to, to pin down what strand or what stream of secret knowledge. What is the key? Well, you talk to one particular spiritual teacher or guru or you read one person's book or you read one teacher's, Gnostic teacher's writings and it'll be this. You talk to another and it'll be that. So it's not one key, which is the irony of it all, right? There's this secret key, but no one can agree on what the key is, but everyone says that you have to have it to gain salvation, to gain this place of of gnosis, of knowledge. Um, The spirit of Gnosticism is alive and well in our culture today alive and well. And you don't have to think of it just in terms of religious practice or religious belief. Think about the culture that we live in. We are living in the age of the expert, are we not? The the guru, the age of the expert, all the pundits on TV, sort of the expert class that has to render their judgment, their opinion on all things, and until they do, then we don't really know what we're supposed to think or believe. I mean, that's kind of a, a, the, the, the essence of our time. We're living in a day and time where expert analysis is the key to unlocking an understanding of the complexities of our economic system 
or of some, you know, legislation or, or whatever it might be. Uh, in his book, Our Sufficiency in Christ, John MacArthur refers to modern, psycholog- modern psychology as sort of a neo-Gnosticism in that many people defer to the expert psychologists or psychotherapists to have the keys to unlocking or bringing the healing to the woes and anguish and anxiety of men, and no one should, should venture off and just try to counsel them unless you've got this secret knowledge that you can confer upon them to bring about you know, their, their, the healing of their soul and their mind and their, their anxiety. So there's, there's all these different ways that this kind of Gnostic way of thinking, these Gnostic strands of thinking, this, this secret knowledge, this mysterious knowledge, this hidden knowledge that only certain select people can have, and then I can bestow it upon you, and you might be a recipient of it if you are of such a class of person, but it is the key, this knowledge. It is the key. The Christian forms of Gnosticism, they began to emerge sometime during the second century. But by the middle point of the second century, it was pervasive. I mean, it was, there was, there's writings from all over the known world at that time that were going after Gnosticism. So it had, it had penetrated all the, sort of the, known, all the churches that had spread throughout the known world at that time. There's writings from every quarter of, of the church uh, attacking or fighting against this Gnostic strand of belief, this, this infusion of, of secret knowledge kind of teaching about salvation and who Christ was and who He wasn't and all these different things that we'll talk about in just a moment. It had infused itself in every part of the church around the known world. You see this in the writings of people like Irenaeus and Tertullian and Hippolytus as they sought to refute these, these Gnostic errors. So let's talk about some of the characteristics of it, okay? And this really, again, thinking about this new spirituality that you can, I mean, you can read about this widely today. Just go do a search for new spirituality and you'll come up with a lot of stuff on the new spirituality of today. And many, many Christians are being uh, enamored by this kind of, sort of this kind of practice and belief of spiritual life. And new spirituality, um, it's, it's very much oriented toward, um, I, I think probably, well, first of all, I'm not an expert in it. I want to just <laughs> caveat that. I mean, I've only done a certain amount of reading, okay? But um, one of the things that struck me about it, and this is the same is true for Gnosticism, just in a different day and time, is that even among Christians, you go back to Matthew chapter 7 and the narrow gate and the wide gate. Well, new spirituality opens up a wide gate. So that you can have, it, it open, basically it opens up the gate, for example, for universalism. If you take, you remember the book and the movie The Shack? Okay, that, that had elements of, of sort of Gnostic belief about spirituality, about the nature of Christ and about salvation. There was Gnostic elements that were running all through that. If you think about um, all those books that came out for, there for a while, there were several of them, about these people's journey to heaven. And then they came back and they write a book to tell all about it, right? They're talking, there's a secret knowledge that they obtained and they're going to bring now to you. And it's knowledge that only they got because, they're, after all, they're the ones that you know, went through some traumatic physical experience, a car crash or whatever, and they actually went to heaven and had a conversation with 
Christ or the Holy Spirit or something, and now they're telling you about it. So all these different elements, it basically, when Christians begin to sort of imbibe this, because they're searching for something more, something deeper, something more profound, or they're just gullible and just believing that, I mean, how can we, that's what they experience. How can you argue with their experience? Experience is king. And so it opens up the door for merging into someone's belief about Christianity everything that is not Christian. And universe, I would say universalism is one big, big sort of threat. It, 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 and see, think about this. Who, who, is behind, who is behind Gnosticism? We're going to talk about this at the end. Okay. Do we, we, we need to remind ourselves. We're talking about a level of deceptive mastery that we can't even fathom. Okay, we're talking about the kind of, of deceptive craftiness that lured the entire human race into corruption. So the, the, the tentacles of all this, they run throughout the entirety of our culture and our human experience. Think about the, think about the, the term. I'm just going to say the term, and, you, and, and I guarantee you it's going to conjure up ideas in your minds. Think about the term tolerance, or its converse, intolerance. Then go to Matthew chapter 7 and think about the wide gate and the narrow gate. New spirituality will be, in terms of, in terms of its Christian context, will be a form of much more tolerant belief and practice. So it's much more appealing in our culture in our day and time. Because, after all, the, one of the highest virtues in our culture now is what? Tolerance. Well, you bring Matthew chapter 7 to the table, that, that's a tough play in that conversation, is it not? But, the plain reading of Scripture and the words of Christ Himself, they just say what they say. They just say what they say. So, again, it's just... it's. I would say that those two things, tolerance and sort of the universalism, which is sort of part of the same, same deal. Yes? I'll be selling bumper stickers that say, <laughs> death to the intolerant. <laughs> You'll make a fortune. Yes? I mean, the practices or the manifestations of this can vary widely. It can be sort of charismatic, you know, secret word from the Lord kinds of revelation type manifestations of it. It can be the idea of the expert analysis punditry class. You know, it can be we are so well enlightened that we understand that there are more, there are more avenues to God, including Christ. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's, it has to do with this special enlightenment that they've attained. It's not, it's not just uh, trying to do something newfangled. It's actually a belief that there's a higher way to think about Christianity. Okay? So it, it can manifest itself in the most traditional sort of you know, charismatic, 
old school Pentecostal special revelation secret word from the Lord kind of ways that have you know been around in our day and time for years and years and years, all the way to you know much more you know hip, urban, you know, and sort of cool ways in, in our day and time. Yes. So it sounds like would you say the foundation of the Catholic Church is based on some form of Gnosticism? Well, and there's I mean, there's a lot of mysticism associated with it, right? So, yes. I mean, I, all, that's what I'm saying. When you think about the nature of deception, it runs through... I mean, here's, here's, here's one of Satan's great benefits. He doesn't care. He, he doesn't care about dogma. He'll use anything. So, it could be the most conservative Roman Catholic doctrinal statement to you know, infiltrating an evangelical movement. I mean, he doesn't care. He'll use anything. So, yes, all of it infuses or finds itself infusing every, I mean, social, political, cultural, denominational, you name it, it finds its way in. It's a good question. So let's talk about a few more things. So you have the, the or a few more characteristics. Let's run through these. Um, <clears throat> One thing is it's, at its root, it, it has this belief in dualism, okay? It, it, not, not Christian Gnosticism, uh, well, Christian Gnosticism in the ancient time, in the ancient uh, church, did draw from this idea of, of a dualistic view of, of God, of good and evil, meaning that there are two original and opposing forces in, in the universe, uh, you have the higher force, the good force, and you have the lower force or the evil force. And this higher force, this supreme good is God. But this God in this Gnostic belief dwells in an untouchable, unfathomable perfection and goodness. The, this, there's an abyss, there's a separation, a complete and utter and total and un, unabridged separation between God and the lower evil, okay? The lower, the lower God, if you will. Interestingly enough, uh, he only relates, this supreme God, he only relates to finite beings through this long chain of emanations. This is where it gets kind of weird. and you know, We start using language that we don't typically use, but the, these, these middle beings that emanate from himself and together they sort of constitute this divine essence. Now, here's the interesting thing. The world was not created by the supreme God. He just was an original existence, the original higher good. The world was created by the lower God in in non-Christian Gnosticism known as the Demiurge. And this is identified in Christian Gnosticism as the God of the Old Testament. So you you see how they start bringing, bringing this this pagan belief into the historical flow of Christian doctrine, but they identify the lower God as the God of the Old Testament. And that's the God who created the material universe. This is a God who is described as inferior, as limited, as passionate, as vengeful. And he's contrasted with the supreme higher God, as the source of goodness and virtue and truth. Now, this higher God is revealed in Christ. 
So you see there's this dualistic view of, of God. One is the supreme God, and one is the lower God, the God of the Old Testament, if you want to bring it into scriptural history, who created the, the material world. The good, eternal, supreme God dwells in a realm that is, is untouched by the physical world. But he has revealed his, his supreme goodness in Christ. Now, this is not the same revealing of himself in Christ that we understand from the Gospels. Because the second characteristic is that they believe that matter is evil. Matter is evil. It's the product of this lesser and, in many ways, evil God. So it's, it's evil by nature. So the created world that we occupy is, is evil. The physical bodies that we occupy are the, are the products of evil. They're, they're, not, they're not part of or associated with the supreme good, this higher God. Um, if you, if, in fact, let me just read a quote to you from... Burkhoff, the world of matter is the product of a lesser and possibly an evil God who is essentially evil. There is found in it, however, a remnant from the spiritual world, namely the soul of man, and a spark of light from the upper world of purity, which in some inexplicable way became entangled in evil matter. Its deliverance can be obtained only through some intervention of the good God. A way of deliverance has been provided by the sending of a special emissary from the kingdom of light into the world of darkness. In Christian Gnosticism, this emissary is regularly identified with Christ. Now here's the difference. He is variously represented either as a celestial being appearing in a phantasmal body. In other words, no incarnation. No no God becoming man. Or as an earthly being with whom a higher power or spirit temporarily associated himself. So there's a drastic difference between those two descriptions and the descriptions we have in Scripture of the Incarnation. Since matter is in itself evil, this higher spirit could not have an ordinary human body. So matter is evil, therefore there's a denial of the Incarnation. Now, when you think about the Gospel, the Incarnation is an essential element to the atoning work of God through Christ, right? I mean, you have John, both in his gospel, as well as in 1 John, going right at this Gnostic heresy. Of course, in John chapter 1, when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So, John is saying, this idea of there being this dualistic, supreme God who didn't create matter, and who is separate, no, that's not, that's not who God is, and that's not who Christ is. He said, the Word was in the beginning, He was with God, all things were made through Him, without Him was not anything made that was made. In verse 14, and, and the Word became flesh. So he's just attacking this idea, like, you know, head on, that matter and created things in the physical realm is evil. Because God, who is with God in the beginning, and through whom He created all things that we know here, Himself became part of this created world. And He just shatters that whole that whole concept, that whole Gnostic concept. He gets more plain, John does, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-3, to when he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. He's going right after this Gnostic heresy with that. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ is from God, is not from God. This is a spirit of Antichrist. So there's this denial of the incarnation because of this dualistic philosophy of, of, of the Godhead and of creation, actually. Dualism and that matter is part of the lower God and part of the lower God's creation and is evil inherently. There's a denial of the resurrection, as you might imagine. So there's a denial of the incarnation and a denial of the resurrection. So I would just say what's left, right? I mean, in terms of the gospel, what's left? So think about it. If you believe that there is, uh, um, that, e- that, that matter or the material world is evil, then why on earth, once your soul is released from this physical plane, would there be any rejoining from this evil material matter? So there's no, there's no chance that there would be an, a, an embracing of a bodily resurrection because that is a joining back together of the supreme, the sublime with the corrupt, with the evil. So there's an out-and-out denial of the resurrection. Now listen to what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, you're in a place where, where Gnosticism had permeated and you had, you had the Corinthians who were very susceptible to newfangled ways of thinking and to worldly philosophy that was sort of their, their, their characteristic. But the Apostle Paul goes straight after this. He says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied going straight at this Gnostic heresy of no resurrection because matter is evil. Well, the next thing about them, and I'm going to be wrapping up here, Gnosticism fed a moral extremism. It it, it resulted in a moral extremism. On one end of the spectrum, you would have a strict ascetic abstinence, a denial, a self-denial of all things material. It's characterized by or suggesting the practice of severe self-discipline and abstention from all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. So it's just a complete separation from anything that would remotely resemble physical enjoyment, enjoyment of the created world. It's just a complete self-discipline and abasement and separation from all those things because they're evil. Or, on the other extreme a complete carnal hedonism, like a complete self-indulgence of all things sensuous. Food, drink, sex, whatever, wealth, whatever in this life I I sensually desire, I'm going to give myself over over to it completely. So it goes from one extreme to a complete opposite extreme. Well, how could that be? Well, if, if the... 
this, this gnosis, this special knowledge that, that was the key to salvation was completely separate from the evil physical plane and could not be touched or affected by the evil physical plane, then whatever you do in this life doesn't even matter. So you might as well just go with your natural basic instincts. Follow your carnal lust would be the argument because it's just totally irrelevant. My, my salvation, the key to my salvation is a, is, a, is a special, elevated, higher gnosis, a higher knowledge that's untouched by what I do physically. So it's, it's completely, I mean, it, opposite extremes of the spectrum. In other words, Gnosticism or Gnostic Christianity could appeal to anyone in terms of how Christian faith manifests itself in this life. Anybody could find a place there. Again, this wide gate, like, like opening things up very widely and making things confusing and complex and complicated. So those were the two moral extreme results. So in thinking about this, why would this be appealing? I just gave you one reason. You can do whatever you want. <coughs> What's that? License. License? Yeah, and also it, gives, uh, it also uh, absolves uh, culpability. Think about the Garden of Eden, though. That was, that was a Gnostic heresy that came, came down the pike there. Right? You have the plain revelation of God. Very straightforward. I've given you this garden... You need to tend the garden. You need to be a steward of all I've given you. You need to be fruitful and multiply. And there's one tree that you shall not eat from it. Every other tree I've given to you for food and for your enjoyment. But this one tree, stay away from. One commandment to say, don't touch it. Don't, don't, don't have any, don't eat it. And then the serpent comes along and says, did God really say? Well, see, here's the thing. He knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be like him, having the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, there's a secret knowledge that's being withheld from you that I know, I know what the key is for you to get it. Now, beloved, let's not, let's not kid ourselves. We are easily led into the pride of our own knowledge puffing us up. And Paul told the Corinthians, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So we, we need to recognize that not just looking at, at this idea of Gnosticism or new spirituality or the various strands that find its way into popular culture, into religious life, and into political discourse, and all these different ways, that we need to really be recognizing that there are seeds of Gnosticism that could threaten our own testimony, if we begin to believe that somehow the knowledge that we're gaining, our growth and our spiritual maturity is elevating us to some higher plane, because we are by nature in our flesh, apart from the sanctifying work of the Lord, we are people who are prideful. And we love for people to think that we are very, very wise, don't we? I mean, can we just be honest about that? So we need to be mindful of this fact, that we are susceptible to to imbibing the same appealing message that Eve succumbed to, that Adam succumbed to. 
that there's, there's more that you can know. I'll close with this. I remember when I was in college, um, I, I found myself really wanting to know more. I was, I was, there was something I was missing. And I started going after these books that were focused on spiritual disciplines. And you know, Richard Foster wrote a book called Celebration of Discipline, and I devoured that. And Dallas Willard wrote another book on the spiritual disciplines, and I devoured that. And I, I mean, I was just in a place in my life where I was like, you know, I, was, I just wanted more. I wanted more. I wanted more. And what ends up happening, and I can tell you just by the nature of my own flesh, I wanted more so I could have more. Is that, is that, a, is that the right end? I wanted more so I could have more. I wanted to know more so that I could know more. It wasn't motiv- In other words, my motivations, though they might have been pure to start out with, I really want to grow, I really want to know the Lord better, I want to know how to honor Him more with my life. I'm not saying I had totally impure motives the whole way through, but I do know that it turned into a form of pursuit of knowledge, something deeper for the sake of it on its own, not as a, as a means to honor Christ more, to be more effective at ministry. And that's why I come back to Winnie the Pooh and the simplicity of that kind of thinking. We, in our sin, whether it comes to our human relationships and the conflicts that we get involved in, or whether it comes to our understanding of the mission that we have in in living out the gospel in our various spheres of influence in life, check yourself. When you start making things way more complicated and complex than they really are, that's a red flag a red flag. Most of the time, there's something really simple that you're missing. And it's usually some basic biblical principle that you're failing to apply because you've got it clouded with all kinds of mysterious complexity. How many of you have ever been in a counseling situation with someone else and they've said, just no one really understands what it is I'm going through. I mean, it's just so hard for people to really understand. I mean, maybe, but probably not because there's nothing new under the sun. And by the way, you have a high priest who's acquainted with all your griefs. So again, I just bring that to the fore, that this idea, that the seeds, the strands of Gnosticism, you don't have to be immersed into a dualistic philosophy of, of original forces in the universe to succumb to Gnostic ways of thinking, right? There's, there's seeds of it and strands of it that can flow out and touch us in many different ways. Any final thoughts or questions before we pray under this mist? Yeah, Phil. Isn't it interesting that the, the Gnostics claim that you, you get this knowledge, you know, it's, it's not from yourself. And, um, and the Roman Catholics say, you know, you, you baptize infants. Right. So there's, it, it's almost like monergism, but when it gets right down to monergism, which is to say, we believe here that God is the one that elects in salvation. They completely reject that. Mm-hmm. that. That it's God acting of his arbitrary good pleasure. Right. There's irony all over the place, <laughs> for sure. All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed.